0: this week on Writers Inc.
1: I mean, virtually all of my first draft writing by dictating, I'll go out for a walk with a digital recorder. And I just find that speaking my words instead of typing them is just a more natural thing for me to be telling stories. Just like, you know, the storyteller around the campfire. That's what I feel like, I'm verbally telling my stories.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc.
2: All right, we're all back, fresh off the career author summit in nashville zach you're still there are there any people hanging around still from the summit
3: not anymore it's, <laughs> it seems like people just left though because there were a uh, a few people um hanging around that i got to spend some time with uh, shout out to chris kane who parked her van in my yard for a couple of days <laughs> and uh and also to jp who i ended up uh Helping my friend of mine sell their van to JP, so <laughs> so I had a very van life week, I guess, while they were here. So, do you
2: get an affiliate commission on that sale?
3: Uh, I you know I'm I'm still giving my friend Heather crap about giving me a commission for that. So, <laughs> but she does uh, she does watch Haley a lot for me. So I guess that's kind of my uh, that's that's my and they have her husband is a mechanic who fixes my car a lot and doesn't charge me a ton. So. I don't think I'll be complaining for a commission. I'm just glad that they really wanted to sell this. This van meant a lot to them and they wanted to sell it to someone who would take care of it, not to someone who's going to like turn it into a work truck. I mean, this is like a 97, like big conversion van. It only had 79,000 miles on it. <laughs> I mean, and, and they gave JP, uh, uh a really, really good deal too. Nice. So, uh, yeah. So anyways, so that was fun to make that connection. Um, and uh, I also uh, I went to a concert Thursday night which was fun Um, I went and saw one of our author buddies who I don't know if he wants to be outed as a musician as well so I don't know if I should say who it was but uh, that was fun first time I've been to a concert in about 18 months so that was that was interesting so all right, so I've got
4: questions there because my wife and I have tickets for Andrew McMahon in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and Andrew's actually coming up, I think, on the podcast in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, but we're, we were planning on flying into Pittsburgh, going to this concert. I know they're requiring like the attendees to be vaccinated. I, I think at the door. I, so I'm curious, like, did they check any of that stuff for the concert you went to? Were people masked or not masked, or how, how did that all play out?
3: Uh, it was outside, so a lot oh. of people were not masked. I would say most people weren't. Um, They did require a vaccine card, um, so I had to show them a, or a negative test, so I had to show them a picture at the door. Um, I will say, though, um, there was a big festival in Alabama this weekend called Furnace Fest. I think they were requiring a vaccination card or negative test for that as well. And I've already heard reports of dozens of people getting COVID. So I don't know if it really matters. I I could be wrong, though, about I don't know for sure if they're requiring it down there or not. Um, But I know for sure there were COVID cases going around. So
4: we're we're both vaccinated, but you know you can probably buy those cards like five hundred you know for twelve dollars on eBay. Like they're they're not exactly difficult to to fake, but we were just curious if it's even worth you know because hopping on a plane going to Pittsburgh like this this was kind of an ordeal. But this is my wife's like favorite band, so like you know we we were going to do it. We haven't been to a concert in forever because of all this stuff, so it just seemed like a lot of fun. But and we're trying to weigh those those things and just determine whether we we still want to go.
3: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, it's just one of those things you're just going to weigh on your own and make your own personal choice. I mean, I have tickets to a couple of different indoor concerts coming up. I have one in November uh, that I'm going to, and then there's another one in January, a, a, a comedy show. Um, so uh, I'm planning on going. I'm, I, you know, I'm vaccinated, and uh, if, if I get it, I'm I'm gonna take. Uh, I'm going to hope the vaccine works the way it's supposed to. And I just won't get a sick. So
4: <laughs> if, if not, we'll be taking applications to fill Zach's spot next week on,
3: <laughs> I, I guess. So now that you've met me, you don't like me. So, you know.
4: I'm still trying to get over the fact that you're shorter than, than Jay on video. You look like you would be taller. I, I, know I, I don't know why you said to me,
3: but... you, you walk in that room and you go, dude, I thought you were like six, five. Yeah. And I was like, good to meet uh, you. I'm not going to uh, say on the air what I said to you, but <laughs> it may have been a four letter word. I, I,
4: I'll I'll say it. I mean, I, I saw you. I was ready to hand you a lunch po- lunchbox and put you on the school bus and send you <laughs> off to fifth grade. Like you're like all of four feet tall.
3: Yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm, maybe maybe I'm a little a, bit more. No, I'm a vertically challenged and horizontally gifted. Gimly. <laughs>
4: Good way to put yeah. it. <laughs> So, publisher stuff. Um, I, I was listening to Six Figure Author the other day, and they had the creator of Publishers Rocket on, um, and his name escapes me. And I know Dave I've, Chesson. I've, Dave Chesson. That's yeah,
3: he. It. He lives really close to me. So yeah, you guys use Publishers Rocket, right? Well,
4: you yeah, don't I really do. run the so. I,
3: I I do. Yeah, I I, I love Publisher Rocket.
4: Yeah, it, it got me thinking because I, I use it, you know, a ton for, for ads, you know, for Amazon ads in particular, um, but not necessarily for keywords for my books. And like it, it got me thinking about this, like when you go on Amazon looking for a book, like, have you ever gone on looking specifically, you know, like based on categories? Like, have you gone in there and just like typed in like fantasy this or, you know, some, something? Ever. Yeah, like I, Sometimes, I don't
3: Sometimes, but I mostly will type in stuff at the search box, which is what most people I believe do is the data says
4: but you actually type in, you know, what would be construed i guess as keywords or do you go cuz i when i go to amazon to buy a book i usually know, you know, what book i'm trying to find or what author i'm i'm chasing down so i've i've never gone in there like totally blind and you know said so i i think i'd like a book about bank robberies and you know like drill I've down done, that one. i've way.
3: done that yeah okay. I, i've done that a lot i'll go look up you know i'll type in post apocalyptic or or something or, or zombie books or something like that um and and i think there's a From what I've heard, and I think Dave has a lot of this data, um, a lot of people do that type of thing. I mean, there's definitely people who go look specifically for an author or whatever, but a lot of people will go start and they'll just start searching for, you know, a certain type of book or a setting or something like that as well.
4: Yeah, it was a cool interview. It definitely got me thinking about that. Um, one of the other things that he brought up is that apparently they've got data now to, to back up that there's some type of cliff after publication date. Um, you know, and anybody who's put out a book, you, you see it in your sales, you know, two, three weeks out, four weeks out or whatever, you know, you start dropping in those rankings and things just like start to change um, and it doesn't feel very organic. It, it, it feels literally like a cliff um, and apparently he, found he has the data to back up that there is something going on there from an algorithm standpoint that, that kind of dials everything back. Um, so, so that was interesting. Um, I do think Amazon factors in like your overall rank over time um, on books. You know, like as an example, like Fourth Monkey is still like in the top 10,000 on Amazon and it's been out for like five or six years. Um, and it's routinely between like number 300 and you know, like 9,000, 10,000, like in that range. So it, it, it's holding on there. Um, so I think you know, that kind of thing is factored in too. But it, it's cool to hear, like, I love data. Like and it's really cool that he's out there analyzing. I, I'd love to get access to those spreadsheets.
3: Yeah, he's got he's got more. I mean, the da- the data analysis he's doing with Amazon. I mean, he he has it's amazing. I actually went to a small meeting with him with like there was like 10 other people there at a Barnes and Noble and just hearing him talk and some of the data and stuff that he gets and I mean, he's done all these experiments with uh uh pro- the book descriptions and the way Amazon crawls those for keywords and uh you know, he he talks about uh, using every single character possible in your keywords. I think it's like 50 characters or something or fi- 50 word. I can't remember. It's either 50 words or f- can't be 50 characters. It's gotta be more than that. But he's like, use as much of that as you can. It's pretty fascinating that he's got a lot of data and I use, I use the, the keyword tool is the, is the main thing I use for publisher rocket. And it's, I, I, I do feel it has made a, it, it has made a difference in my sales.
4: Yeah, so anybody listening, if, if, if you haven't checked it out, just um, check out the, the Six Figure Author podcast, uh, that, that particular episode in particular, I really liked.
2: Cool. Uh, related, I got some publishing stuff here. Uh, we want to give a shout out to our friends Joanna Penn and Mark Leslie Lefebvre, who have a new book out called The Relaxed Author. So we'll have a link in the show notes. Make sure you pick that up. Uh, those are two stalwarts uh, in the industry and good friends and good people. So make sure you go grab that book. Also, a little teaser here, I uh, will also have a link in the show notes as you're listening to this. I put up a blog post yesterday uh, sort of introducing an NFT experiment I'm doing with my author community. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, we're at the very beginning, we're, we're going to be taking um, a royalty share approach, uh, sort of looking at NFTs as a way to give readers a share of profits, which is a different model, not something you see in uh, publishing, at least I haven't seen it. And something that uh, is happening more in the music industry. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, and there'll be more coming on it at a later time.
3: I'm an investor, so I'm
2: watching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on. Uh, let's get on to our uh, our sponsor here, and then we'll get into the interview. As always, we want to thank our wonderful sponsors Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember, on Kobo, you get promo opportunities, you get to set your own pricing in all the different markets of the world, and you don't have to be exclusive. So if you want more information on how you can do that, go to KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to give a nice shout out to new patron, Susie Geisler. Welcome, Susie. Uh, always great to have patrons join us. And if you would like to become a patron of the show and submit a question for the monthly Q&A episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash writersincpodcast. And that brings us to our guest for the week, J.D.
4: All right. This one's going to be fun. This is somebody I've been reading for Jesus, as long as I can remember. Um, and I mean, a lot of tie-in novels. I think that I first discovered, I mean, it's Kevin J. Anderson, by the way, cause I probably should have thrown his name out there at the beginning. <laughs> um, I, I, think the first one I actually picked up was a star Wars tie in that he did. Um, and then I probably read about 200 more that he did after that because this guy writes like a, a machine. Um, and then he, then he was in the, um, the X-Files universe and, and, you know, I devoured those too, and just a, extremely pr- a prolific author, um, and very talented, um, and very good with dialogue. I mean, it, it just as a writer, like if you to you know, just check out somebody who's very good with dialogue. He's 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 one of the the best out there. Um, but I'm I'm really excited for this one. Here he is, Kevin J. Anderson.
2: Who is the biggest Rush fan? You or Mark Lefevre?
1: Boy, that's a tough question. But of course. <laughs> he's he's taller but i think i'm i'm the bigger rush fan if we're doing this but you know it's not a competition you can <laughs> uh, you can both share in your love for greatest lyrics greatest music greatest drummer ever
2: yeah i mean i'm i'm poking fun at mark with that but in all seriousness like you know you've had uh You've had some some great uh, collaborations uh, with Neil Peart and um, a huge fan of the band, as so many of us in the rock world are. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of your, your fondest memory of, of that work or a couple of those memories?
1: Well, I my first novel, which came out in 1988, called Resurrection, Inc., was inspired by Grace Under Pressure. And, you know, I was the nerdy high school kid who listened to Rush all the time because I couldn't get dates. And I wanted to listen to like 2112 and Xanadu and Cygnus X1. And, and uh, so I was writing stories inspired by their music. And uh, by the time I was 25 or so, I'd written the whole novel that was kind of, I mean, it wasn't a novel of grace under pressure the way my Clockwork Angels novel is a direct novel of the album. Um, But it was very much inspired by it. And I just put in the dedication of this book that it was inspired by Grace Under Pressure, and I thank Neil Getty and Alex. And I mailed off copies to Mercury Records, and about a year later, Neil wrote me a letter back, and I got this like letter from N. Peart with a Canadian stamp on the on the front of it, and and uh, one of one of my very favorite days, I think. And and so he and I wrote a short story, kind of a creepy. Uh, dark fantasy thing called drum beats that we published in an anthology and we've reprinted it a couple of times. And I just did it as a, uh, after Neil died in j- last uh, January, 2020, um, I did a beautiful illustrated edition with a new cover painting by Steve Otis and, and interior illustrations and a forward, a new forward that I wrote and we included the original afterward that Neil had written for our ebook release of it. Uh, and that just came out in a beautiful signed numbered edition that sold out immediately, of course. So that's been gone for a while. But uh we we are making it available as a as a wide trade release uh in September 2020 is when that that uh is out. And you know, just Neil working with me and, and we just every time we we see like um what did we just watch? We watched a back, like almost famous, like the backstage concert stuff, and we watched this, and it just gets me, like, heavy in my heart because of so many times that, that uh, I was backstage and just hanging out with Neil, getting ready for shows and stuff. But of course, my favorite one was when uh, Neil was doing their what would be their last album, Clockwork Angels, and he came to me and was asking all kinds of questions about steampunk fantasy adventures because I had written a bunch of them and he just wanted to know all the tropes and all these things for his story. And and they were doing this giant concept album with the plot line all the way through it. And we were, my wife and I were having lunch with him at a diner in Santa Monica. And he was just so excited about Clockwork Angels. And he said it was going to be a, not just an album, but it would be a Broadway musical and ice follies and a novel and everything else. And, and I'm like, I'm a rush fan. So I went, Ooh, cool. Ice follies. And, and uh, my wife was listening a little more closely and she said, but, but a novel, Neil, what are you talking about a novel? Who's going to write the novel? And he says, well, Kevin is of course. And then he goes on. And so that was, that was probably my favorite memory. So we we have Clockwork Angels, the novel, and then we did a sequel that we think is even better, called Clockwork Lives. And then we did graphic novel adaptations of both of those. And um, so that was so my favorite work of all the stuff I've done.
2: That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I- I'm sure. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but I'm going to guess and say that when you put that dedication in that book, you probably didn't expect uh, a personal letter a year later from the band's most reclusive or private member. Uh, what, what was, I mean, what was that moment like for you?
1: Well, I've always kind of had a, a life philosophy of, you know, you thank people that inspire you and, um, I wasn't expecting anything back, but I kind of wanted somebody in the band to know that their music had inspired me. So I just sent off the, off the books. I never seriously expected to get a response. Cause I, I've often done this sending things out to, you know, an actor I admire or maybe a political figure or something and nobody ever answers. So you just don't expect it. Uh, but that, that one letter. And at the, at the very end of the letter, and I include part of it in the, drumbeats introduction that I just published. Uh it's Neil just writes, and if you would if you would like to keep corresponding with me, I'd be open to doing that or something. And I just went, Yeah, that's that's a done deal right there. So can't pass that up. We were friends for over thirty years before he
2: passed. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, But of course, Rush is is not the only area where you've explored and dabbled in other places. I mean, you have a a long, distinguished career in in publishing in different mediums and and, and different ways. Can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, some of of those, like the Star Wars universe or any of those other uh, intellectual uh, IP worlds that you've helped create?
1: Well, see, one of the things when I was just a kid wanting to be a writer... I thought that what you did was you wrote a novel and you got paid enough money to live on. And then you wrote another novel. And, and for some people, that's the case. And, and actually for me, that was the case for quite a while, but I would write like Resurrection Inc. um, Was, was uh, critically acclaimed. It got great reviews and of course didn't sell enough to pay any of my bills. So I had to write another book and another book. And, and I, just on the basis of my, uh, my original science fiction and fantasy Lucasfilm noticed it and they approached me to ask if I would write Star Wars books. Now that wasn't something I tried to do. It was sort of like a, uh, like a streak of lightning, just something just came out of the blue. And so I started writing Star Wars books and then Chris Carter, the guy who created the X-Files read my Star Wars books and then he liked them. And so he asked me if I'd write X-Files books. And and I did some movie novelizations of uh, some some kind of good and some kind of bad movies, but you don't really know that because you can't read the script first. They send you the script and then you write the novel. Um, And then I, let's see, I got to get, my Dune by Frank Herbert was always my favorite science fiction novel ever. And I read it over and over again and I read all of Frank's sequels. But when Frank passed away in 19, uh, I think 86, um, I didn't look it up ahead of time so I think it was like 1986 um, he left his story just on a cliffhanger and I waited about 10 years for his son Brian who was also an accomplished science fiction writer uh, I waited for him to wrap up the story so I could see how it was going to end and and when that just never happened I wrote him a letter just kind of a surprise that I didn't know him I'd never met him and I just told him how much I loved Dune and how much I'd read all of his, uh, his father's other works and Asked if he was going to work on the final book, or if not, could we maybe work together on it? And and we got together and just really hit it off. We became very close friends, and and again, we've written a couple of million words together. It's uh, we're our again. I my wife always teases me because I'm never good at numbers, but I think we're at our fifteenth Dune novel now. the The Duke of Caledon is the newest one, uh, October 2020. Uh, is the publication date on that. And we've got another one we're about to start here and we're doing graphic novels and comics. And, you know, it it all goes back to loving what you're doing and I love doing and I love Star Wars and, and I love Rush and, and um, you know, and I see all these writers that just have their tearing their hair out and they have writer's block and they hate writing. I go, dude, then go get a different job. I love writing. I love telling stories. I love doing this. And um, so there you
2: go. I don't know if I uh, I I feel like you you channel some of the same energy that the late great Ray Bradbury did. Can can you talk about what you learned from him as both a writer and as just as a person?
1: Oh, what's funny is is I when I was in high school I just fell headfirst into all of Ray Bradbury's stuff. I read all of those short story collections, and they just I can right off the top of my head just remember the foghorn and the sound of thunder and the fruit at the bottom of the bowl and the golden apples of the sun and each one of these stories had as much impact on me as like a novel did and i just read them and read them and read them and i grew up in a small town in wisconsin and of course ray bradbury grew up in small town in illinois so a lot of the stuff he was writing about i think it was greentown illinois if i remember right um a lot of the stuff he was writing about was very much like, um, what, what I was living. And I read the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451. And and I really fell in love with something wicked this way comes oh, and me too. Uh, yeah. just loved all those things. But the funny thing is, is I read them all when I was like a sophomore and junior in high school. So I, so I, and he's not a fast writer. So I, I read them all. I was all done. And then I went off to college and then I, I, Uh, published my first novel and kept published. I kept writing short stories and kept publishing all these short stories. And then my, my local library, this was kind of right when books on tape were starting to show up. And because I was commuting to work every day, I would always get the, the, there were on cassettes. Then you would put the cassette in your car player and just listen. And there was this collection of Ray Bradbury reading his own favorite short stories. And I'm that's cool. So I got them and I listened to them. And as I'm listening to all these Ray Bradbury short stories, like my jaw is dropping because I went, oh crap, that's where I stole that idea from. That's where I (laughs) stole that idea. There were so many of my own stories that I had just um, been greatly inspired by. And it was all in the back of my mind. I didn't remember any of those. And the one and only time that I I met Ray Bradbury face-to-face, he was pretty old then and he was uh, in a wheelchair, but he was having... Uh, dinner at a at a I think it was the Los Angeles World Science Fiction Convention or something, and I just I was starry-eyed. I came up and I introduced myself and and I said that I enjoyed his his fiction so much, and I told Ray ba- Ray Bradbury to his face that I stole some of my very best <laughs> ideas from you. And, and he laughed and, and uh, shook my hand. So that's my only experience with Ray Bradbury, but he was a big influence on
2: it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, uh, you, you talked a little bit about audio, and, and that's a, maybe a good segue into uh, something that you've become quite uh, facile at, which I, I think is impressive. Can, can you talk about how you do a lot of your first drafting these days? And what I'm talking about is uh, in the mountains, in the desert. Uh, what, what, how do you do that?
1: Well, I'm, I do, I mean, virtually all of my first draft writing by dictating. I'll go out for a walk with a digital recorder. And I just find that speaking my words instead of typing them is just a more natural thing for me to be telling stories. Just like, you know, the storyteller around the campfire. That's what I feel like. I'm verbally telling my stories. But I've trained myself how to do it uh, in a very smooth, clean way, just because I've practiced it so long and I live in the mountains in Colorado so I go hiking all the time and it's like I'm in my office I'm surrounded by waterfalls and tall mountain peaks and everything so I just it it came about when I mean I would be typing but I'd get kind of stuck and I'd go well how do I how do I work out this plot problem or uh, this character feels flat and I don't know enough about the character how do I develop the character a little bit more so I would just go out for a walk and kind of mull things over in my head. And I'd, sometimes I'd take a little notepad with me and kind of try to scribble things down as fast as I could think of them. But as I developed more and more and more that way, I couldn't write them fast enough. I couldn't get all the details down. And, and I could have like this whole imaginary uh, argument between two characters in my head. And I have like 40 sentences, all beautiful dialogue. And then when I come back home and try to type them up, I wouldn't remember anything. So I finally started carrying a recorder with me and just using that for notes. And my notes process got to uh, more and more and more fleshed out so that it turned out to be almost a first draft. And then I decided, well, why not make it my first draft instead of retyping everything? So that's how it, it came about. And I, I wrote a book about it called On Being a Dictator, uh, which is all my different techniques on how to do it. I, I just think. Especially in, in times of the pandemic, we, we, at least in Colorado and in a lot of states, even when there was a lockdown, you were still allowed to go out and walk as long as you were on a, someplace away from crowds of people. So I would still go out into my isolated national forest trails and all kinds of places and get lots of writing done. But one of the big techniques, uh, I, I kind of got fed up with, you know, I would be telling people how much it worked for me. And so many people would get fired up and they'd go out and then they come back and say, oh man, I tried dictation for 47 seconds and it just didn't work for me. And it's a learned skill. It's something that you have to practice. And, you know, you can't, the first time you sat down at a keyboard, you didn't type 100 words a minute. You didn't know where any of the letters were because whoever designed the keyboard did not arrange the letters in order. So they're all over the place. Well, dictation is the same thing. You it, you have to learn how to do it your first Time will be sort of like hunting and pecking on a typewriter, and and you just develop it. But I I just love it as a brainstorming idea, as as an exercise. Go out and and uh, dictate yourself. And speaking of exercise, it helps you get exercise instead of sitting with your butt in the chair all the time.
2: Yeah, and you know, given how how long you've been doing it and and uh, how long you've practiced it, can you give us a sense of? When you when those words that you've spoken hit the paper, what kind of shape are they in? How, how much work do you have to put into those that, that would sort of be above and beyond if you were typing it?
1: Uh, very very little more than if I were typing it because my typing it would be a first draft too. Um, but see, the thing that helps from the creative perspective is when you're out walking and dictating, you can't go back and dink around with the last sentence. You have to keep moving forward. And when you're telling a story and you suddenly stop and go back to change your punctuation or to correct a spelling, it's like you're shifting your creative engine from forward to reverse to forward to reverse. But when you're out walking and dictating, you just have to tell the next sentence and then clean it up. Um, But again, I remind you that I've been doing this for 30 years, so I'm pretty well practiced at it. Um, When you first start out, what I suggest is start out as like notes to yourself so that they're not required to be complete sentences. They don't have to be you know well-organized paragraphs or anything. It's just so that you don't forget all that beautiful dialogue. But you know when you're dictating dialogue, you are speaking the way people speak because it's coming out of your mouth. Um, one of my audio narrators, audiobook narrators um, has told me that my books are some of the easiest books ever to narrate because he never gets a sentence that is impossible to say out loud. Whereas if you're typing, you might end up with um, seven words with the letter M right in a row or, or lispy sounding things that you can't differentiate when you're talking. And i tongue twisters and stuff. So, um, you know, that's just, that's just the thing. But it still goes through cleanup. When it comes back from the typist, then I have to kind of do a weed whacker through it. And then I polish it some more and go through it a couple more times.
2: So if someone's coming to it brand new, Ballparking it, how long do you think it takes before you get an innate sense of a scene, whatever that means for the genre or project you're working on? Uh, the reason the reason I ask is when you're typing on a screen, you can kind of get a sense of how many pages you've covered or or how many paragraphs are on the page. But if you're if you're just recording it, you don't. So is it a time thing? Is it a feel? How, how does that work?
1: Well, first off, I personally am a very strict outliner. So I have my whole book outlined and I know that chapter one, this happens, chapter two, this happens. And so when I go out to do my writing, I, I have like, here's my one paragraph that lays out what's in chapter one. And I kind of refer to that, but then I'll just dictate it off the, off the top of my head. And I find that my chapters are maybe 2000 words and they turn out to be maybe 14 minutes typing, I, I mean, dictating. But I I mean, I talk pretty smoothly. I don't have a lot of ums and long pauses and things in them because I can roll it. But it's something that, you know, it's an individual thing for each person just sort of like typing is. I mean, how, how many minutes does it take you to write a 300 word page? Well, I can write it at a different speed than you can, maybe just because right. we're writers.
2: Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I know that, you know, we're in a time where live events and in-person things are a little bit different than they used to be. Uh, what's happening at the summer residency at Western Colorado these days?
1: Well, we just, uh, we're, we should tell people we're recording this back in August. So when you're hearing it, it's a while ago. Uh, so I I run the graduate program in publishing at my Colorado University, and I give out master's degrees in publishing. So I teach a group of students, and we we it's all online for the fall semester and the spring semester, and then we're supposed to uh, meet face to face for two weeks in the beautiful Colorado mountains in July. Well, obviously in 2020 that didn't happen all that well, but you know it it really taught us to kind of. Uh, put on our best game and really push forward. And we did it all by Zoom, but there's, there are good ways to teach by Zoom and there are really bad ways to teach by Zoom. And I think that we, we really pulled it off in a, in a pretty spectacular way because um, you mentioned Mark Lefebvre at the beginning and Mark was going to be our visiting instructor, meaning he would physically come out to Colorado and be there for the whole week to pop in and kind of do peanut gallery comments or guest lectures here and there. Uh, and he still was our virtual guest uh, speaker, but by doing it all with zoom allowed me to bring in all kinds of guest speakers. I believe I had one every single day for an hour in the afternoon. We had the head of Audible.com. We had best-selling authors. We had successful indie publishers. We had a New York editor. We had uh, other authors. We had all kinds of people that could just pop on, and they would they would talk their shtick for an hour. And then, um, thanks. Thankfully, I've got sort of a fidgety personality, so even though we're basically teaching from one to four thirty every afternoon. It's like you do an hour and then you break for 20 minutes, then you do another hour and then you break for 20 minutes. And and one of the things that I miss so much is that almost every single night we would go out with the students to dinner. I got to, there's the local brewery in Gunnison, Colorado. So we just go hang there, but we're still doing. In fact, I just set up another meeting for this coming Saturday where anybody who wants to come, we just sort of have an open mic Zoom call where we sit there and have a beer and just, shoot the breeze. And and it kind of brings us together as a tight-knit group of students. So the very first year, uh, we had nine students, which is the most we're allowed. And then even in the pandemic, when everybody's scrambling and everything's changing, we still got, uh, well, we got 10 students and then two of them deferred. So we've got a full group of eight. And then coming in July, 2021, we'll open up again. But it's, I, I love the program. I think it teaches you uh, no nonsense stuff about publishing. It's fully balanced between traditional publishing and uh, indie publishing because things are things are changing so much. I got to read as fast as I can so that I look smart in front of the students because a lot of them can know as much as I do. So it's uh, Western Colorado University and then publishing. If you if you know how to use the Google, you can figure that one out.
2: Do you have a separate track for Colorado microbrews?
1: not a separate track, but we, we studied them very carefully, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, there's, there are different, when I, I always put that when I'm talking about my biography, that I'm a, I'm a aficionado of fine craft brews. And then I talk about how much I love rush. And then I talk about how much I've uh, climbed the mountains in Colorado because uh, an author bio shouldn't be boring saying, and he wrote this book, this book, this book, this book, and this book, and you can find him at this website. That's, that's not what your bio you should read. You should try to do something interesting and put that in there instead.
2: Totally agree. And I can remember as a kid and growing up in Western Pennsylvania, my dad uh, came came back from the uh, uh, the beer distributor, which is what they had in PA, and he had this brand new uh, beer that he found called Coors. <laughs> and I, and I remember, it was just so funny, like you think about what Coors was in the 70s. It was sort of a microbrew, uh, a whole lot different these days.
1: Well, and it was also, it was, if you're in Pennsylvania and I was in Wisconsin, there was sort of a mystique about Coors because it was not allowed to be shipped across the Mississippi right. River because yeah. there was some, it, it wasn't pasteurized to theirs. There was some legal reason because they use some different process in canning. And so it was like this great white whale for all of us on the eastern US going there's this mythical thing called coors that nobody's ever tasted and and I remember my first trip over to the rockies and I had had to have a coors and and wow it tasted just like budweiser or miller or anything <laughs> else and, and that getting completely off our subject but but um there we are living in quite a golden age for many many things um there i mean growing up in wisconsin which is you know, it's a great place to grow up, very Ray Bradbury-ish, but it's not like the, the cultural and culinary mecca for interesting ethnic foods and interesting things. And all of the beer was basically the yellow lager kind of beer, and it all was Ham's and Schlitz and Miller and Stroh's, and, and it all was, you know, pretty much identical. But then sort of this big explosion came with Samuel Adams and Anchor Steam and Sierra Nevada. And and then microbreweries started appearing all over the place. And about the same time that Starbucks came out, and people will knock Starbucks, but Starbucks was the first really good coffee that started showing up all over the place. I mean, you had Folgers and Maxwell House and Farmer Brothers Coffee. It was the only thing you could get anywhere. And it sort of has upped... Uh, the microbrewery industry has upped the stakes for how good beer tastes and Starbucks has upped the stakes for how good real coffee can taste. So that has nothing to do with your show, but I'm <laughs> doing my, my side bio stuff about something interesting because I'm I'm very prolific and productive, as you might have noticed. And I drink a lot of coffee in the morning and I relax with some really good beer and the
2: yeah, and you're making me really thirsty. So maybe maybe it's a good time for us to kind of pull the conversation towards a close. And uh, I want to ask you a little variation on what you just said. Uh, you mm-hmm. said it, it's a golden age for a lot of things right now. Is it a golden age for publishing? Uh, if so, why? You know, why or why or why not, I guess?
1: Well, ever since I was like eight years old and wanted to be a writer, it was always the worst time ever to be a writer. I mean, everybody always said this is the worst time ever to get into it well the thing is is that if you know what you're doing you have way more possibilities now than you've ever had if you're a writer or a publisher Um, it's sort of like yeah there are way more beers that you can drink but you could still get a bad beer if you pick the wrong one um maybe that's stretching the metaphor too much Uh, there are so many opportunities but it is harder in the sense that um look, most writers just want to write a book and send it somewhere and make a million dollars and then write another book. Well, that isn't it anymore. You have to, not only do you have, you can't just be a songwriter and have somebody else do your song and you make a lot of money. You have to write your song and then you have to record the song and then you have to go on tour for your song and then you still have to uh, keep doing stuff. It's like that with publishing now, that if you are going to be an indie publisher, which is more and more of a, um, the more obvious way, especially with, uh, and remember, we're talking in October or August right now. So I don't even know what the, what the publishing and book selling world is going to be like. But uh, in July, uh, US bookstores released numbers that their sales were down uh, something like 68% from the year before. And bookstores were never like Las Vegas casinos printing money, bookstores never made a lot of money and publishers never made a lot of money. And now they've just all hit black ice and went spitting all out of control. So I don't know that your normal route of writing a big novel manuscript and sending it off to Bantam Books or Simon & Schuster and then having somebody publish it and put it out in all the Barnes & Noble stores or chapter stores, if that's gonna work anymore. So, But on the flip side of it, one of my disadvantages as a small publisher was I couldn't get my book stuck in the window at Barnes & Noble. I couldn't get an end cap display in chapters. But I can play on an equal playing field if I'm publishing my books to Amazon and I've got a good cover and I've got good write-up and I have good keywords and I have all the listing because nobody, I guarantee you, no reader goes to Amazon and looks for the new dune book and go gee I wonder which publisher published this they just don't they want to know what the book is they want to know what the author is they want to know what the book is about and they want to know what the cover looks like so that it doesn't seem cheesy or amateurish so we have a chance now it's sort of like they they took the the super bowl and made it open to all players and you know if you're willing to do the work and willing to keep uh, abreast of the subject, and and keep working because it's it's never rest on your laurels. It's never there. I wrote the book. I'm done. So you have chances now, but it's a lot harder. You can't just be a writer. You have to be a writer and a publisher and a proofreader and a marketer and a um, book designer and everything else too. So
2: excellent. Is that mm-hmm.
1: inspiring or depressing? I'm not sure which <laughs> one that was, but.
2: I was really kind of torn because I have about a million things I wanted to ask you, but I I figured you didn't have time for about a five hour podcast. So,
1: well, I mean, that's, that's always the problem. Like, well, what do I talk about in this one? Cause I've always (laughs) got, um, so well, I just want to do a a quick plug. You can follow me on Twitter at, at, and then the word the, and my initials KJA and on Facebook, just look up official Kevin J. Anderson and you'll find it. Uh, my own website is wordfire, wordfir Uh, And let's see, my brand new, I've got this big epic fantasy trilogy that started out with Spine of the Dragon and then the second book, Venge War, like Revenge War, uh, published in January 2021. Got a new Dune book out October 2020. A bunch of comics out. I've got a bunch of my own other books that we're publishing at Wordfire Press. I'm still running the whole grad program at, for publishing at Western Colorado University. And I enjoy craft beer and I cook for my wife every night. So
2: well, you're like there a we saint go. for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she does the dishes. That's our division of responsibilities. So there.
2: All right. As a drummer, I got to kick it to Zach first. A little bit of music talk in this one uh what did you think of the interview takeaways
3: Uh, yeah it was fun um (laughs) you know it's 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 really cool uh the stuff that he's done with neil pert with neil pert who has unfortunately passed away now uh he passed away when we were to remember i told you on a whole foods about that we were in california i think it was together and and i walked up 2020 yeah last Mm -hmm. january right before covid hit uh but uh, but that was that's really fascinating uh I, I knew i know neil's a writer and i you know I, i'd known that he had done the stuff bef- with kevin and all that and so it was really cool to kind of hear him talk about his process i mean the the things that kevin's been able to do i mean he's i loved when he was talking about dune and he's he he's i just reached out to to brian and was like hey are you going to uh do you know who's going to finish these last couple of books or whatever it is, and then, I mean, how many books have they written together now? I mean, it's dozens in that Dune series since, so, he got to do Star Wars. I mean, the guy's just done some really, really neat things.
2: It's it sounds like something JD Barker would do, right? Just cold email <laughs> someone. <laughs> you know, honestly,
3: like
4: that was the first thing that jumped out at me. You know, like he's got all these relationships, and just you know, how did he go about you know starting those? You know, with with Rush, he sent them a book. You know, he dedicated a book to him. He sent it to him. Um, you know, George Lucas's company saw you know one of his books that he had written and reached out to him. And but he, he's he's you know aggressively going out there and just you know waving his hand in the air saying, hey, pick me, pick me. Thank <laughs> you. Um, which is what you need to do, you know, in this industry, because there's a lot of those projects out there, and people don't even, you know, like in, in the case of Dune, like you know, nobody may have been looking for that at the at the time, but he, he saw an opportunity there, and and you know, he turned that into a franchise all his own. So kudos for that, and that's definitely something that you know, any author out there that, that wants to break into the this world, um, particularly with tie-in stuff, things like that, that's that's a great way to do it. I mean, there's so many TV shows that don't have novelizations, and I can guarantee you know, a, a network would be all over that if you volunteer. Um, and people just don't do it not not often enough
2: it ties in too to something that Hugh Howey said on his first appearance on our show about fan fiction and and about um, a a great way to establish your voice and to get uh, your writing chops under you is to write fan fiction and it and it seems like you know the the tie-ins could be a great bridge um, or the or the fan fiction could be a bridge to the tie-in
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like back in the day I wrote in the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, I I wrote a couple tie in novels to that and, and you know the way that works is they you know once they they agree to, to go with whatever concept you put out there either they give you an, an idea of what the book is supposed to be about or you present it or, or whatever but you know all the parties have to sign off on it um, in the case of Buffy then I was given a, a bible which basically explains you know the characters um, any information that you know any back history you know because that, that's you know there's obviously a lot of canon there in that particular storyline um, they give all that to you so as an author you know you're basically stepping in you're writing a story you've got your outline or your, your rough idea of what it's about all your characters already exist, you know, so you can sit back and you can watch the TV shows and you know exactly what Buffy the Vampire Slayer is like or those particular characters or the characters from Dune, you know, you can literally watch them on the screen. Um, and it, that's, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways where I learned how to create characters because I was, you know, developed them on, you know, in my mind, real people. I mean, they're obviously actors and actresses, but, you know, they're, they're presenting them in a way where they're real and you just have to carry that over to the book. And you know, it's a great, great learning tool.
3: I'm uh, to shift the conversation a little bit too. I I know Jay, I, I know he does this, but I'm curious, JD. Uh, do you do any dictation? Because I I love uh, I've heard Kevin talk about that before, and I, I loved him talking about dictation here.
4: I tried. Um, I'm I'm really self conscious about walking down the street and people seeing me talking to myself. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, it's hard, like he's in the mountains, he's all by himself, you know, it's probably just him and his dog and a bottle of water and they're just wandering around. So that, that to me seems a little bit easier. I'm, I'm on an Island where I run into maybe five, 10, 20 people that I know, you know, during my little five mile walk, um, you know, and people look at you funny if you're, if you're talking to yourself. So if you're holding up your phone and you're talking into your phone, like that kind of helps. Um, the closest I do to it is I dictate into my watch. Um, I've got a record app on there that, you know, I, I just hit a button, I can record whatever, you know whatever I want to put on there and it automatically transfers it into text and puts it on my Mac and makes it available for me later so I I do that quite a bit um, and, and it, for dialogue in particular it's it's huge and he brought up the the reasons why because you know anything you say out loud is going to translate you know first it's going to sound real it's going to sound like real dialogue but it you know makes it that much easier for the narrator um, so that works on so many different levels um but you know he kind of did it you know the way he mentioned it was kind of fascinating to me because he does this a little different i think than you know the way i would probably do it like he starts his walk off and he's he's got you know like the paragraph that that particular chapter is about in his mind and then he literally just starts writing that book by by dictating it so like he's already got that you know that piece together and and typically what I dictate is little snippets you know like Oh, I think this needs to happen. You know, two thirds of the way through the book, so I'll record it really quick, and then I'll I'll drop it into you know my simple note document, which is where all these go later. Uh, so I kind of piece my you know my partial outline together based on that. But I've never tried writing a full chapter that way. And I'm sure it's you know probably once you get the practice behind you, it's probably an incredibly you know easy way to get it done. Um, but it takes a lot of practice.
3: Yeah, I mean once you get it though, that's I use dictation. Some of he does. So I'll go on a walk, and. Either be in the middle of a chapter or starting a chapter, and I'll kind of look at my notes for that chapter beforehand, my outline or whatever, and then I'll just start type like speak in the chapter. Um, and I and I get a lot done. I, I did it this morning. I went on my walk, and like the last half of my walk, I ended up getting like 800 words in or something um, before I even sat down to start typing for the day. And it definitely helps with dialogue. Uh, it, it makes it makes a really big difference there. I'll also say. I I can relate to what you're saying about looking weird. I had that same thing until I heard Chris Fox say that he used to get on, like when he would ride the train to work, when he had a full-time job, he would be on the train dictating and talking about like shooting aliens and stuff. So after that, (laughs) I was like, okay, so I've done it like at the gym on the treadmill and stuff like that. Sat there talking about killing zombies and I'm just like, whatever. Most people there are just focused on themselves anyway. So if they hear me, they can just think I'm weird. I mean, look at me. I look weird anyway. So,
4: well if any if anybody missed it he's got a book out there Kevin does um, called on being a dictator where he actually goes into That's this a great and I'm gonna
0: title too, I, yeah okay.
4: I'm gonna check that out for sure and I ironically it doesn't look like it's available in audio like it's only available in print <laughs> <laughs> But I'm gonna get it anyway
2: well uh, uh Zach you've been teasing a little a little KJA connection uh to you haven't even told us so I think I'll say it like
3: that I just had a story I wanted to tell all it's right not, I'm not teasing anything you were teasing but, us. I was y'all a little yeah. bit, yeah. So no, I just, uh, it, it was funny. It was it was cool having him. On. So I've never met Kevin, um, but when I first moved to Nashville in 2007, I worked at a music store. Um, when I first moved here, and while I was there, I made I made a friend who I still talk to occasionally this day. Uh, we don't talk a lot, but his name's Chris Brown, and uh, he's a phenomenal guitar player. I don't think he really plays much anymore. Um, but he had a band called Ghost Circus and was kind of he was almost like the J.D. Barker of prog rock. Like he always was just kind of there, even if you weren't sure he was supposed to be or not. Um, but he was friends with Kevin and still is. Fr- I believe he's still friends with Kevin this day uh, and had kind of told me about him. And, and Chris actually worked on an album uh, that was a direct tie-in to a book that Kevin wrote uh, called The Edge of the World, which is the first book in his Terra Incognita series. And it had, like, from what I remember, it had some pretty big prog rock superstars on it. I mean, it had like James the Bree, the singer from Dream Theater. Uh, I mean, se- several pretty big heavy hitters in that genre. My buddy Chris played guitar on a couple tracks and, uh, and I, th- I believe mixed most of the record, I think. Um, so around that same, after I left that job not too long after, I, I, I moved to the company that I was up, I was at until I left my job. And I was, when I first was there, I was a traveling sales rep. And I got the itch to like read a book, and I hadn't read a book in forever and walked into a bookstore to find something to read while I was on the road, like flying stuff. And I picked up The Edge of the World because of that, uh, that connection I had to Chris and everything. I was like, well, I'm going to check this out because I've been listening to the album. I might as well read the book. Um, and that book was really uh, what kicked off me getting really back into reading as an adult. <laughs> and it's probably a huge reason why I'm sitting here right now. Wow. Um, so yeah. So that's my connection to Kevin. And it was really kind of like a full circle thing. Cause that happened, this all happened, gosh, 12, 13 years ago now. Um, so, but yeah, it was, that was kind of the first book I read and like after in a long time and really kicked off me wanting to read and, get me back in a riot. And here I am. So yeah. So thank you, Kevin. <laughs> and I'm sure Chris says, Hey, so
4: one more thing that just kind of jumped out at me, um, that I think a lot of people gloss over is the author bio thing. Um, Oh, I know, love that. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. You yeah. Yeah yeah make the bio about you know interesting facts about you Um, and I'm totally guilty of what he said like if you read my bio like it it mentions a couple books that I've written and you know I'm basically listing accomplishments there that the you know the reader most likely doesn't care about you know it's cool stuff for me but they probably don't care Um, or they already know so they're not really learning anything new about me um, so I like the fact that he, he actually you know dwells into a little bit about himself and you know because it is a bio. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna revisit mine and just kind of keep that in mind and see if I could do a little little rewrite on it.
2: Yeah, Kevin's a great guy. I mean he does a lot for the writing community. He's, he's a teacher and he, he's really trying to get young people involved. So it was really an honor and a pleasure to talk to him and, uh, and, and really enjoyed that. So it was, it was great having him on the show. So who do we got next week, JD? Next week we've
4: got a, a friend of mine, Eric Rickstad. Um, I've known him for, I'm not even sure how long, four or five years or so now. Um, he was one of the first New York Times um, bestsellers to actually give me a blurb on one of my books. Um, just a really cool guy, very generous, and he lives up fairly close to me. He's, um, you know, he, he comes down my way every once in a while with family, and one of these days we're all gonna uh, hang out. Uh, but he's gone through a lot of changes lately. Um, you know, He's a New York Times bestseller, but you know, he decided it was time for a new agent, time for a new publisher, and he kind of re- revamped his, his career. Um, he's got a new book coming out, um, it's called, I, I am not who you think I am. It releases at the end of the year, um, with a brand new publisher, brand new agent. Um, and he's, he's with, um, Shane Salerno, which is the same agent we had talked about before that, uh, reps TJ Newman. Um, he was one of the writers on Independence Day, the movie, um, a lot of very strong Hollywood ties with this guy. And he's, he's definitely one of the, the bigger agents out there. So Eric is at a very interesting time in his career. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to just hearing, you know, what's you know, spurred those particular changes on um, and, and how he feels, you know, now that he's got those changes in the rear view and he's, you know got a new book coming out. So it's going
2: to be a, a fascinating conversation for sure. Excellent. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.